I really mean this. This is not a Christian cliche. It is a blessing for me to be with you again today and uh, just to lift our voices and praise our Savior. And, you know, with music, we edify one another. That's part of uh, the purpose of music in the church. And you have edified me this morning. You've blessed me. And it's great to join in that together. So really glad to be back with you on this Lord's Day. And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11. So I invite you to go there with me. And uh, the times that I have spent with you here, we've been talking about the book of Hebrews along the theme, A Better Way to Live, A Better Way to Live. The first part of the book of Hebrews up through about chapter 10 lays a doctrinal foundation for the better way to live, and that is through Jesus Christ being the one supreme sovereign Savior and the one sacrifice for sins forever. And so he is the way that we come to God, that we can approach God, that we can be brought into fellowship with God. But then it doesn't end there, does it? In fact, that's just the beginning point. And so we're turning now into more of a practical side of the better way to live. And what I'm calling this message today is real, live faith. Real, live faith. I'll explain why in just a minute. Glance with me, actually, at chapter 10. And uh, verse 22, where it says in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So it is by faith that we draw near to God. It's by our faith in what Jesus Christ has provided for us that we are able to approach God. And you glance down to verse 39, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, and you see the writer says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And a lot of the book of, book of Hebrews includes a warning to people who would shrink back from uh, their life of faith in Christ. And in fact, the preceding section right there in between the two verses that we just read includes one of those strong warnings. And as you understand, the times I spend with you, um, I'm not able to walk through uh, a text thoroughly because of the limited times I have here, but I'm selecting portions from the book of Hebrews to share with you, so I'm not intentionally skipping over that section, but it does uh, it does send a warning to us to be careful about shrinking back, as he says. And that's the purpose of this now is to point us forward in this life of faith. And now you see Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith. So he's carrying forward that theme of faith and telling us that this is now how we live. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Let's talk about that for just a minute. What he's describing here is the fact that God actually has, has permanently recorded for all of history for us, the names and the testimonies of people who lived by faith. And we find them described here in Hebrews chapter 11. And in the first number of verses here, we see that he uses that term again. They were commended by their faith. In fact, if you glance with me all the way to the end of chapter 11 to verse 39, so chapter 11, verse 39 now, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, they didn't experience everything God promised in their lifetime because some of those promises were fulfilled later. But again, you see that idea that they were commended through their faith. So so Hebrews 11 is bracketed by these terms, commended 
because of their faith. And the word commended has the idea of being attested to. And it's God who is attesting to their faith. Now, when you look at Hebrews 11, sometimes there's a, a title that people give this chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. What, what comes to mind? What is the title that is often given to this chapter? It's called the what? The Hall of Faith, in the sense that these are individuals who are being acknowledged for their life of faith. And I would say rightfully so. And you understand that's not a biblical designation. We don't find that in the Bible. Uh, that's something just that people call it. And, and certainly it's worthy of that, that term and that title. But I do want to be a little bit careful with that because we think of a hall of fame, as we might call it, as, uh, let's say, a, kind of a museum-type setting uh, where people's pictures are placed on the wall and a description of their lifetime of, of achievements. And they are, they are elevated because they achieved what most people don't and what many people never will. So they are elevated because of those accomplishments which distinguish them from others. And that's really not what Hebrews 11 is about, is it? In fact, Hebrews 11 is more a, a description of examples, a presentation of, of what is possible for us. The idea is that because and just like these people lived their lives by faith, you and I can too. In fact, if you glance at chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So the, the life of faith is lived as we begin by trusting in Christ, and then we live that life out by trusting in him as well. And just like these people, men and women, lived by faith, we can and should also. And that's why I'm titling this Real Live Faith, because this is real, this is for our lives, these are living examples of regular people, and we can live in the way that they did as well. We don't have the same circumstances, we don't have the same necessarily uh, assignments from God or the same lifestyles, but we can live by faith just as they did. So what can we learn about real life faith from this text? First of all, we see that faith accepts unseen realities. I mean, that's kind of the definition of faith, right? You're believing what you can't see. But the object of this faith is not a dream or a myth or something that's fabricated, well, these are realities. They come from Scripture. The source of them is the Word of God. But they are unseen to us. They are not visible to you and to me right now. Possibly because some of them happen in the past, or because they happen internally inside of us, or because they're going to happen in the future. So they're not yet visible. But, but faith accepts them and brings them, as it were, into the realm of observation in our lives. That's what he's saying in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So they are realities, but they are yet to be experienced. And faith accepts that these are true and makes decisions by them. 
So we're actually making decisions in life by what we cannot see, but they are realities, and so we accept them by faith. You see the word conviction there in verse 1. Means, it means that we are convinced of these unseen realities. So we're persuaded that they are true, and we believe them, and we act accordingly. So faith is the means of understanding what we cannot see. And he's describing that in, uh, there in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, we know nobody here was present when the origin of the universe took place. No one alive was there. There are no eyewitnesses to that. So regardless of what a person believes about how the universe began, whether an act of God or something else, they're believing that by faith. They're taking that on faith because nobody was there. So we look at evidence and we look at a source of truth, the word of God, and we, we understand what happened there. And in the same way that we believe that about the past and understand the past by faith, we also look at our lives internally, what God's doing in us spiritually, and we look at the future. We look at the promises God has given to us, and we perceive them, and we understand them, and we accept them, and therefore we can, we can live accordingly. So what else can we learn about real life faith? We can also learn that faith acknowledges human impossibilities. Not only things that we can't see, but things that really are impossible. And brings them into the realm of experience. Look starting in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended, there's that word again, as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, another example, Enoch, was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended again as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then another example, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, my understanding of, of this section is that these are examples of people who pleased God. But the way that they pleased God was through their faith, not so much through the good things that they accomplished, but through their trust in God and their belief in Him. Cain's, excuse me, Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he brought it in faith. Enoch was a man who walked with God, lived by faith, and God took him. In fact, it seems like the emphasis there in Enoch, on Enoch was the fact that God took him and, and he was taken to glory and now experiences life. So God gives eternal life. And then Noah, 
through faith in God's warning as well as God's promise, built the ark, brought his family into that, and they were saved from God's judgment, a picture of salvation from God's wrath. So the emphasis here is on God accepting us and and our doing what is impossible, which is pleasing God, and doing that by faith. So faith is the means of attaining what we could never be, and that is pleasing to God. Now, this all really ties into what we've been talking about all along of how Jesus' sacrifice for sins and our acceptance of that in our behalf puts puts us into a right standing with God. It is emphasizing this beginning point. But it helps us understand that this better way to live is a succession of decisions. These are decisions that we make on faith. We believe what we can't see. We understand what we don't experience. We are able to please God, which is something that's impossible in ourselves. And we make these decisions based on faith, and then we act accordingly. Our acts reflect our faith. Is that how we live? Is that how you live? I mean, we live in a tangible world. We, we drive material uh, cars made out of materials. Um, we go into a building, whether we're home or at work or at school or shopping. Uh, we're out on the, you know, the, the dirt of the ground. We're, uh, we have our feet on solid footing, maybe in a, on a floor. But we feel life in a tangible way. The relationships that we have are, are physical. We see each other. We communicate verbally. We hear one another. But there's a realm of life that is immaterial, that is not tangible. It is who you are spiritually. It is your soul. And, and it is the promises God makes to you that are yet future, that we cannot see or touch. And it's that realm in which we live by faith. And so this better way to live means that we make choices by that faith and we act and we live accordingly. And really the whole chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, is about that. I think somewhere uh, there might have been a uh, a heading that indicated my my sermon today would be on Hebrews 11. Well, (laughs) we're not going to cover all of Hebrews 11 really today. Um, just, Just the first eight verses or so. But, but the, the, the whole chapter points to and, and elevates people who did this. Uh, chapter or Verses 8 through 22, starting with Abraham, uh, people who acted on the promises of God. Verses 23 through 28, people who esteem Christ uh, better or higher than any other desirable thing and the way they acted accordingly. And then verses 29 to 38 take us to the extreme edge of faith. People who faced vicious opposition and yet they walked with God and they trusted him. And then chapter 12 even is about enduring in faith, and chapter 13 about other practical choices that we make by faith. And so really the rest of the book is about this this life of faith. We're going to focus on just one of these this morning, and that is Abraham in verse 8. And so what we learn from Abraham is that faith hears God's call. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, 
whose designer and builder is God. So you see there how he was looking forward, not to the tangible place where he would live, but to God's overall plan that Abraham was part of. So we see that faith hears God's call. By faith, Abraham obeyed. And we naturally think of obedience as an action. Actually, the, the Greek word behind this word obeyed in our text is made up of two parts, and the second part of it is a word that literally means to hear. So as parents, we teach our children to listen with their eyes and their ears and their heart so that they understand what we as parents are saying to them and the the response that we want from them, them is that they will act on what we say, correct? So we want our children to listen so that they can follow our instructions. That's exactly what this word obey means. It means to pay attention and to listen to receive that message that's coming in, to give it the attention it deserves, process it, and then to make a choice to act accordingly. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He heard God's call and he heeded God's call. And to do this, he had to exercise faith. We know that Abraham was was a long way away from the place God sent him to. Never laid eyes on it before. Didn't know what he was getting into. But he just listened to God and he followed what God told him to do. He obeyed God. What was it that, God, that, that Abraham heard? He heard a call. He heard a call. Now, that's a fascinating topic. In fact, Abraham's not the only one who heard a call from God. God actually calls us today. I want to give you a definition. I find this very helpful, because when we think about a call in Scripture... It helps us to understand exactly what the Bible is talking about. This is a very, I think, helpful definition from James Packer from the Baker's Dictionary of Theology, and he describes it this way. God's call is God summoning men, and that's a generic term here for men and women, by his word and laying hold of them by his power to play a part in and enjoy the benefits of his gracious, redemptive purposes. Now, if you receive a summons, what comes to mind? You're being called to appear in court, right, before a judge. That's usually what a summons is. Well, this word, I think, does have that little bit of an edge to it. God invites us to believe and to follow him, but hey, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and his his call comes with a level of authority. He is worthy of our attention and our obedience. And so that call comes as a summons, doesn't it? Yes, he invites, but, but he, also, he also does that with a, with a level of authority. He summons us. I think that's contained in this word. It's a very good description there. How does he do it? By his word, through the, the scriptures, the written scriptures. And I know there are resources and people that talk about about God calling or a call that comes to us in in our lives. But let's let's just remember ultimately that God's call comes primarily through the scriptures, the written word of God, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how he calls us to himself. And he lays hold of us. So I, I even think of the term arrested. That might be a little bit strong. How about apprehended? Do any of you feel like God just apprehended you? when he saved you. That's how I feel it. That's how I understand 
because I wasn't looking for him and in some ways was resisting him, but he lovingly, graciously, but also very, very uh, firmly and tenaciously placed his hands on my life and, and drew me to him. And uh, God doesn't lead us away in shackles, right? Doesn't arrest us in that sense. But he has a way of making his will known to us. He has a way of, of bringing us into fellowship with him where, where sometimes we, we realize it was, it was his initiative and his work in our life that accomplished that. And so he lays hold of us by his power to forgive us from our sins, absolutely. To give us a home in heaven when we die, of course. But there's so much more than that. God's call to us, as this definition says, is to play a part in and enjoy the benefits of his gracious, redemptive purposes. And that just expands it out beyond our lives and our little path to this grand and glorious purpose that God has for time and history and the human race and the universe. And it started, yes, in eternity past and and was brought into fruition in time and space with the creation of the world and, and humanity and and culminates and will climax with the return and the reign of Jesus Christ and, and then eternity with him forever. And we become part of that grand and glorious plan. And so, so living by faith is, is fulfilling our role in that plan. So I find this definition helpful, and I want us to keep it in mind as we move forward here. So God was calling Abraham, yeah, to pack up the truck, so to speak, and drive down the road, and, and move to a new location, but so much more than that, so much more. And, and really it was later that God revealed to him that great promise, the covenant, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless every other nation through you, and it was unfolding, and much of, of God's promises to Abraham would not even be fulfilled in his lifetime. As it says, he looked for that, that city uh, whose designer is God, and so he looked even beyond this life, and we can and should too. So, so this points us now to what this call is, but the question is, what does this have to do with us? Is God calling you? Is there a call on your life? And the answer is yes. Yes, he is calling you. He does call us. We do have a call on our lives from God. And we don't necessarily find it here in Hebrews 11, because this is describing Abraham, but I want us to see what God's call for you is today so that you can experience real life faith, so you can hear it and so you can carry it out, so you can make decisions by what he's told us to do. So I'm going to point us to a few thoughts and uh, some references along with that. What does God call us to? First of all, he calls us to turn around like when you're going one direction, someone says, hey, and you realize they're behind you and you turn around to look at them and see what they have to say. God calls us to turn around. Jesus said, Matthew 9, 13 records, Jesus saying, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus calls people who are sinning against God to turn around, that's what the word repent means. It's the idea of having a change in your mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. So he calls us to turn around. We are naturally self-reliant. We are naturally self-righteous. 
And the truth is, we are all naturally sinful people. In fact, Isaiah describes it this way. He says we have each turned to our own way. We're all going our own direction, doing what we want to do. But when the call of God comes to us through the gospel, Jesus died for your sins and rose again, that means that we can't save ourselves. Our righteousness won't save us. Our self-reliance won't help us. And the sins which we're committing, we need to turn from and be willing to turn to Christ and trust him for salvation. That's where this call on our lives begins. And this is God's call to everyone here. Turn from your own way. Turn to Jesus Christ. Trust in him and begin following him. And if you're a Christian, you heard that call. And you responded in faith. And you believed in Jesus. And there was a turning point in your life. I'm going to invite you to turn to uh, the rest of these passages with me. So would you go with me to Romans chapter 8, please? A little bit to the left of the book of Hebrews there. To Romans chapter 8. And we find that God's call to us is to turn around, yes, but also to be forever changed. To be forever changed. While you're turning to Romans 8, let me mention that at the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul said in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, as he addressed these people in the in the city of Rome, who were Christians, he said, he said, you are the called of Jesus Christ. He identified them as called to be saints. So, so they had a new identity, the called ones of Jesus. In other words, they were Christians. They were saved, just like I, I just described. But then he points them to a life now that ensues from that call. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is an amazing text of Scripture, isn't it? And it becomes very precious to us as believers when we realize that the circumstances of our lives are part of God's plan for us and that they actually produce good. But look a little bit deeper at what he says here. He says this is for those, in verse 28, who are called according to his purpose. I have my plan in life, and maybe you have your idea about how life should be. But God has his ultimate plan for us. Remember the definition of a call? So that we would fulfill his purpose and be part of that. And so all the circumstances in our lives work in and through us to fulfill the purpose to which we've been called. And then in verses 29 and 30, he gives some theological context to that from the standpoint of God saying God has been at work in your life to save you from, again, eternity past all the way into the glorious future. But he says that right now there's a process taking place, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his Son. So he's talking about the fact that you and I are transformed through his work in our lives over the process of time. In other words, that we would be forever change. We're called according to his purpose. 
We have a new destiny, and that is to be conformed to the image of his son. I remember back when we first started talking about faith a few minutes ago, we said that faith takes what is invisible and brings it into the realm of observation, and faith takes what is possible and brings it into the realm of possibility, of realization, right? So if you understand that the circumstances of your life are part of God's grand purpose to shape you into the image of Christ, so there's that spiritual reality, there is that theological truth, and you're having a hard day, or you're in a difficult relationship, or there is uncertainty about your financial future, or you are struggling with with just who you are in your flesh and trying to change to please God. What does this do for you? You can anchor your faith to that grand truth that God has called you, that he has predetermined the the shape of your life to be conformed to the image of Christ, and he is at work in you through all of your circumstances, all things, to produce that good. And you can say, you know what, as hard as it is, as much of a challenge as I am having, as uncertain as it seems, as, as inadequate as I am, and as much as I'm struggling, I trust that God is doing this. I believe that he can, and that he's in charge of this grand purpose, and I'm on board with it, and I'm allowing him to change me and transform me. And you may recall where Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that as we behold the image of Christ, we are changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. So that's that same process he's talking about here. So as we behold Christ in the Word of God, through our meditations on Him, we see who He is, and that process of transformation is taking place. That's why it's so important to be in the Word continually and daily, and especially during times of temptation and trial and challenge, because through that we grow. So, There's God's call. He's calling you to be forever changed. But then, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and find that he has called you to surprise everybody. And we'll see what we mean by that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, Paul is writing here, and he's talking to these Corinthian believers about their calling. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, there's our word, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You understand that what he's telling us here is that it's not because God saw potential in you 
or that you had somehow caught his attention and that he thought, well, there's somebody I can invest in because that, that person has potential. Um, it's not because of any way that we impressed God with the kind of person that we are, that he has called us and chosen us and saved us and given us this new life to live. It is only and wholly by his grace. He, in his love and his mercy, looks upon us and actually does not, in fact, does the opposite of choosing us based on our worth or our potential. He chooses us because we don't don't really have the ability to please him or to carry out his purpose. And in fact, in relation to much of the world, Christians are, are kind of a kind of subpar, kind of a subculture, even in, in the world's estimation of our worth. But God takes those unworthy people and elevates them by his grace. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our righteousness, he is our wisdom, and he is our redemption. And the, the result of that is, wow, he can save even me. Or other people look at our lives and say, That's pretty amazing. God must have done something incredible for you because you're surprising us. We didn't know that 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 was in you. Whether it's because of sin or just a lack of sophistication or or kind of, you know, world, uh, a belonging in the world or or being, being elevated in the eyes of the world, there's an impression, an impact that we have because of the grace of God on us and it causes people to look to him And if there's any praise or any boasting, as Paul says here, any glory, it goes to God. It goes to him because of that. So our calling is to to be remarkable in that sense, to make an impression in that way, which is all based on the grace of God. Now, please join me in 1 Peter chapter 2 as we go to another one of these aspects of God's calling on our life. And remember, each of these is a spiritual reality, and we put our faith in it, and we make decisions and take action accordingly. We find one of these in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, 9, I'm just going to look at the middle of this verse, and then we'll, we'll go to another verse in this same chapter. But look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the middle of the verse that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a, what a eloquent statement of, of why we're saved, to proclaim his excellencies. Now, what are the circumstances in which you do that? All right, let's look. Look down at verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So our call here is to imitate Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. A beautiful text. What this is pointing us to is the fact that we're supposed to imitate Jesus. In what circumstances? When people are hurting you. When people are maligning you. 
when people are saying malicious things about you. This is describing Jesus being the object of scorn, of unjust accusations, of of mockery, of literal torture, and then death by crucifixion. So this is saying that the fact that Jesus did not retaliate in those awful hours is set up as an example for you and for me to not retaliate when you are experiencing something even remotely similar. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what that may be for you. But it's likely that you have or are or will experience a situation where someone is is speaking against you. They're saying hurtful things to you, possibly spreading gossip about you. And it might be a relationship that you have with someone that's dear to you and it's turned into a hostile situation. And it may be that people are just being being awful toward you and saying and doing hurtful things towards you, whether they intend to, whether it's malicious, or sometimes even they don't even realize it, but it's, but it's hurtful to you. And our tendency naturally is to turn it right back, isn't it? To make a remark, to shoot off a comment, to put up a post, um, maybe describing it without naming the name, but everybody kind of knows who we're talking about. Uh, to, to spread information about that person that can put them in a bad light, just like they're doing to you, whether that's true information or maybe exaggerate a little bit. I mean, that's what's natural. That, that's how the world operates. But what he's calling us here is to, by God's grace, restrain ourselves from that and, in fact, to actually turn and to bless. In fact, look at chapter 3. Verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, it doesn't just mean when they sneeze either. Bless, do good, as Paul says in Romans 12, to those who hurt you. Do good to them. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is your calling. This is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. This is your destiny in God's plan. This is his purpose for you, to be like Jesus. And it's those times when we are tested, and it is so hard. We have to say, you know what? I have to exercise faith here. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem like what I want to do but I have faith in God's calling on my life and who I am in Christ, in his purpose, in spiritual realities, and by his grace I can do this and I ought to because I want to reflect and resemble Jesus because it glorifies God and because it blesses other people and points them to him. Them to him. You see that? Does that make sense? That is our calling. Now there's one more I want you to look at, it, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, back to the left a little bit, chapter 7. Now, this one's a little tough. And what I'm going to do is point to one verse, and I'm going to summarize the rest of it and let you look at it later if you want to. But this passage emphasizes the idea of God's calling on our lives, especially regarding our unique path of life. 
So let me look at, let me show you the verse, and then I'll talk about the, the circumstances he's addressing here. So look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Wow. We should all go meditate on that one for a while, shouldn't we? Interesting statement here. That God has assigned him. Lead the life God's assigned him into which God has called him. And in this context, in 1 Corinthians 7, he is raising some circumstances that those people were facing which were difficult for them. And again, I'm just going to touch on them, and we don't have time to go into detail regarding these, but the first area he's talking about is the area of marriage. And he says to some of them, great, you're married, awesome. But there's some of you who aren't. You are either single or possibly you are a widow or a widower. And he's saying, God has given you that path of life. Not that you should never be married, that's not the idea. Not that you should never change these circumstances he's addressing here, but as long as you're in them and God isn't leading you in some other direction, he says, live in that path. Embrace that unique path of life. Even in verses 10 through 16, a difficult marriage situation. Not telling us to stay in a situation where you're being physically abused or anything like that. Don't misunderstand this. But he is saying that because of sinfulness, problems arise and and there are spiritually mixed marriages, a believer with an unbeliever sometimes. And he's saying there's there's a calling there for you. You can actually have a sanctifying effect in that marriage, in that relationship, in that setting. Uh, In verses 18 through 20, he talks about circumcision versus uncircumcision. He's talking here about the great racial divide of their day between Jews and non-Jews. And he's saying, you know, there's potential even for one to say, well, I wish I'd been born into one setting, or I wish I'd been born into another setting, whether it's racial or even possibly religious. A person who wasn't a Jew might think, well, I wish I'd been born a Jew so I could receive all those blessings. Or a person who is Jewish because of the persecution might say, I wish I wasn't born a Jew so I could be free from all that. Say, no, you stay in your calling that God has given to you. And then down through verses 21 through 24, he's talking about things like slavery, not endorsing by any means slavery, but he's saying if that's where God has put you and there's no escape from that, that's part of God's role for you at this time. That is your unique path, those hard circumstances of life. So to review, marital circumstances, racial and ethnic identity, religious background, hard circumstances of life, Then back to verse 17. Lead the life God has assigned to you and to which God has called you. And again, it's not saying never change your circumstances if you can improve them. But if if this is what is before you, this is the path before you, and you don't see that changing, recognize there's a sovereign God. He has a purpose for you. He wants you to fulfill your purpose in that place along your unique pathway of life. There is a way to glorify him in it. There is a way to grow as a believer in that. There's a way to impact others as well in those settings. So faith hears God's call to your unique path. Change what you can, accept what you can't, embrace that calling, 
and live out God's higher purpose. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and just be reminded of what we've looked at here in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. What an example of real, live faith Abraham is. God called him to leave one place, go to another place, receive a blessing, which he didn't even know everything that that blessing included at the time, to live for a promise that was way out there in the future, and to fulfill God's purpose. And God does call us in a very similar way to leave our past, to move forward in our future, to receive blessings along the way, some of them now, many of them later, to live for a promise and to fulfill his purpose. He calls us to that. So the question for us is, are you listening? Are you listening and are you following about a month ago, I started getting unusual phone calls on my cell phone. And I would look at the number, and it was in my area code. It was the 515 Des Moines area area code, but it was not a number I recognized. And I don't know, being such a nice guy, I just started answering it, right? I was like, okay, somebody wants, wants to talk to me. And then there's a little bit of silence, a few seconds of silence, and then you start hearing a recorded message. Oh, man, it's one of those marketing calls and, you know, just end and put it down. And, and uh, so, so I don't learn too fast, so I, I answered a bunch of those, you know. <laughs> and, and I finally realized, okay, so, you know, somehow my number got in the call lists and everybody's calling me. And, and so, so I, I, I went online and I filled out the form to make sure my number's on the do not call list. Well, it still takes a month or so for that to, you know, to register and all that. So I keep seeing these numbers and I actually looked it up. They're called spoof calls because it looks like it's somebody that's like your neighbor or something, right? But it's really not. It's somebody. It's just a recording and all that. So, okay, so, so I, I started seeing those numbers I didn't recognize. And, and so when that happened, I would just literally ignore it, right? Just ignore it. Um, now, there are people that, that call me. And uh, w- when it rings, I, they're in my contacts list. And so their name appears. Now, when that happens, I make a decision. Because I might be doing something that, that I don't feel like I can stop to take that call. So I'll just let it go to voicemail or just see their number on there and call them back later. So in a sense, I kind of ignore it and let it go. But I know I'm going to get around to, to responding to that eventually. Um, and then there are the times when, when my wife's name appears on, on the screen. And uh, unless I'm, I just absolutely cannot extract myself from what I'm doing or who I'm with, almost always, of course, I'm going to take that call, right? Because she's important to me, and because what she has to say is important. And, and I think sometimes God's call can almost take on the, uh, that, that, our response, let me put it that way, our response to God's call can become kind of like how we treat the telemarketer's calls. We can decide, well, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm just going to let that one go. So we're in our circumstances, we're in our daily life, we're facing the temptation, we, we're going through the trial, we're making the decision, 
We kind of know what God wants us to do, or we know it's, we know it's there. We know we can, can, can determine God's will from his word, but we just kind of ignore that. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to pay attention to that right now. Or we delay it. Well, okay, I might get around to, to heeding that. But really, on a much greater scale, the way that God wants us to treat his call to us is as more significant, more important than any human being, but it's his word. It's his will. It's our sovereign. It's our savior. And so we should be all ears when the message is coming to us or when we need that direction from him. It's like, I have to hear from God. I want to know what God is saying. I want to follow his word. I want to do his will. I want to fulfill his purpose. And I want to do it now because of who it is. And and you and I can do this. We can do this. This isn't just a hall of fame. It is a hall of faith. These are examples to us of real life faith. And you can have real life faith too. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. I'm going to allow you just to respond as God has spoken to you in your own mind, your own thoughts. I'm going to say some words that could be adopted as a prayer. I'm not trying to tell you what to pray, but it could be something like this. Lord, I listen to so many things. And we do, don't we? Some of them are good for my faith. Others are not so good for my faith. And I have a lot to say myself. I'll be quiet now. God, you are the one who speaks and who calls. And I am ready to listen. May your call awaken my faith. I want to hear. And I want to follow. In my place in life, on my path in life, help me to hear your call and live by faith. so we lift our worship, our lives to you because you are worthy in Jesus' name.